0: to introduce to you Kelsey Bayreuther. She has been the senior class advisor since our freshman year. She is the manager of the ENC store and teaches as an adjunct professor in the, in the English department. She graduated from ENC in 2005 and completed her master's degree in English at Boston College. Please help me welcome Kelsey Bayreuther. I'm honored to speak to you, the faculty, staff, students, and members of the community of Eastern Nazarene College. I'm especially honored to speak to you, the graduates of the class of 2010. Thank you for allowing me to be your class advisor in your years here. You are about to leave the campus where you've lived for the past four years. I'm sure that for most of you, this is exciting, but also very bittersweet. I would like to share with you a little bit about my life after ENC when I graduated five years ago. When I was sitting in my junior-senior chapel, I was desperate for more time. I hardly slept at all during my last week on campus. I just wanted so much to be with my friends for every moment. I didn't want to leave my friends who had become my family, didn't want to stop eating three meals a day with them, didn't want to leave the safety and comfort of a place that had become my home, didn't want to leave behind relationships with my professors and mentors. Although I was very glad to be finished with classes and pleased with the accomplishment of my degree, there was the uncertainty of what my new life would be like, and I did not want to leave my community. Soon after, a friend shared with me Hosea chapter 2, a chapter that has become one of my favorites. In it, God is speaking to Israel, his people who have been unfaithful to him. He speaks through the prophet Hosea, who he instructed to marry a prostitute, as an illustration of how Israel is unfaithful to God. It's a longer passage, but listen for how God takes everything away from his people and then how he gives it all back. Hosea reads, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from her breast. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for I was better off then than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. I will punish her for the days that she burned incense to other gods. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. And then this is where the turn is in the passage. Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the name of other gods from your lips. No longer will their names be invoked. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. In this passage, you can see that God is taking away all the distractions and lovers that steal us away from him, until we are alone in the midst of the desert. When we have nothing left and nowhere else to turn but back to God, He then immediately stops the punishment and begins instead to woo us and betroth us to be his lifelong love. I find the switch to be very abrupt. In one sentence, God says, I will punish her. And in the next, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He strips everything away until we are in the desert. But at that moment where we see we have nothing but God, he surrounds us with love and care. For me, the desert wasn't just leaving ENC at graduation. It was just one piece that God removed from my life. In the fall after graduating, I was living with a couple of friends and started my master's program at Boston College. I was ready for the work, but disappointed with the environment, which was not the encouraging, caring environment that I had thrived in here at ENC. I was struggling to become friendly with classmates who intimidated me that fall, while my mom had flown to Florida to help take care of my grandmother, who was slowly dying. But when my mom called me on a Thursday night, it was to tell me that my younger brother was in the hospital. He had been taken there by ambulance after collapsing in his college dorm in a diabetic coma. He had always had several health issues, and I had grown up in a home where that seemed normal. We had a typical brother-sister relationship where I could tease him all I wanted, but I was fiercely protective if anyone else did. My mom called to ask me if I could drive up to New Hampshire the next morning while she flew home from being with my grandmother. She downplayed it that night, and I, and I realized later it was her way of protecting me, making sure that at least one of her children had a good night of sleep that night. She had asked our pastor's wife to stay at my brother's bedside until she could get there. My dad rarely traveled for work, but was also away at the time, and both my parents were stranded in airports in different parts of the country, waiting for the first flights home. My little brother almost died that night. He was in... He was in intensive care in a diabetic coma. He went into septic shock because an infection on his leg moved into his bloodstream. He was put on a ventilator to breathe, put under cooling blankets because his temperature spiked at 108 degrees, and put on dialysis because his kidneys shut down. But he made it through the night, and my family reunited at the hospital. My brother was in intensive care for several weeks and in the hospital for the next six weeks. I spent my weekends and the days I didn't have classes doing homework in the hospital waiting room. I did my work, but I wasn't worried about the competitiveness anymore, and I wasn't worried about not seeing friends from ENC anymore. Being with my immediate family was the most important place to be. On Thanksgiving that year, my mom, dad, brother, and I ate together in his hospital room. Our Thanksgiving meal was from the hospital cafeteria, and under our plates were paper placemats that elementary school children had decorated for families who had to be in the hospital over the holiday. I said to my family that it was our most meaningful Thanksgiving, and my brother cried. Throughout those six weeks, my mom would fly to Florida when my brother took a turn for the better and my grandmother a turn for the worse. She passed away in early December, just after celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary with my grandfather. My brother came home from the hospital the day of my grandmother's funeral and went through months of recovery. I had never prayed more than in those weeks, and my prayers had never been so selfless. Instead of focusing on and clinging to the pieces of my life that God was slowly stripping away, I had been in the desert, and he had been surrounding me and my family. In a way, it was a reintroduction to my family being my primary family and to being an adult. I was still just one semester out of college and one semester into grad school. During my finals, I walked past a sign advertising a silent retreat in January. I emailed for more information and quickly signed up. I think a retreat from those last few months sounded appealing to me. Boston College is a Catholic Jesuit college, and the retreat was called the Ignatian Silent Retreat, and based on the writings of St. Ignatius of Loyola. The Ignatian Retreat is usually a retreat of 30 days of silence, but the one I went on was for just five days of silence. I joined a group of students at the Boston College Retreat Center in Dover, Massachusetts a beautiful mansion which was once a home and dormitory for Catholic priests. I had my own little room there with a homemade quilt at the end of the bed, a little desk, a comfortable armchair, ate the most delicious catered food at every meal, took naps every afternoon, and just loved the quiet time. I quickly realized that I was the only Protestant on the Catholic retreat. (laughs) I participated the best I could at Mass and evening prayers each day, and as others noticed that I wasn't Catholic, they weren't able to ask me about it because of the silence. The silence had begun about an hour after we arrived, after we introduced ourselves, and met the retreat directors who would be our spiritual advisors for the five days. The only person we could speak to was our spiritual advisor, for one hour each day. Outside of that meeting, we were told that to respect the silence of those around us, we should avoid even eye contact. To slow down and appreciate the silence, they encouraged us not to multitask. It would be easy to hide from the awkwardness of a silent meal by bringing a book to read while eating, but we were asked not to, and I found a lot of peace in sitting side by side with people who had been strangers, in companionship while we ate together. In Mass, we could look into each other's eyes while passing the peace of Christ and being served communion, and neither has had as much meaning to me as when it was my only human interaction of the day. While on the silent retreat, I reread a book by Henry Nowen, titled The Genese Diary, Report from a Trappist Monastery which was actually recommended to me just before I graduated by Dr. Yerksa, who was my living issues professor. The book is Henry Nowen's journal of the seven months that he spent living in a Trappist monastery in 1974. Going on my retreat was a choice I happily made, but it came after a difficult six months of leaving college, struggling in grad school, and the difficulties that my family had gone through. But many points in Nouwen's book resonated with me and the desert that I had experienced, and I'd like to share three of these passages. The first one is this. Solitude becomes really hard when you realize that nobody is thinking about you anymore. Then some place for God might become available in your occupied mind and heart. When you have been forgotten by people, maybe then your heart and mind have become empty enough to give God a real chance to let his presence be known to you. Even in this protective place with many good people around me, I am afraid of being forgotten, of being left alone. Yet I chose to be alone. I wanted it. Here I can experience a little bit of the desert and realize that it is not only a dry place where people die from thirst, but also the vast empty space where the God of love reveals himself and offers his promise to those who are waiting in faithfulness. And uh, this is the second passage from him. Did I really live my life or was it lived for me? Did I really make the decisions that led me to this place at this time? Or was I simply carried along by the stream, by sad as well as happy events? I wonder if I really have listened carefully enough to the God of history, the God of my history, and have recognized him when he called me by my name, broke the bread, or asked me to cast out my nets after a fruitless day. Maybe I have been living much too fast, too restlessly, too feverishly, forgetting to pay attention to what is happening here and now, right under my nose. And the third passage is this. After having done everything to make some space for God, it is still God who comes on his own initiative but we have a promise upon which to base our hope, the promise of his love, so our life can rightly be awaiting an expectation, but waiting patiently and with a smile. Then indeed we shall be really surprised and full of joy and gratitude when he comes. The best friendships that I formed at Boston College were with people who had been on the retreat with me. When we saw each other on campus afterwards, we would run up to each other to hug and excitedly talk, only to realize that we had never spoken before but we already felt like we were friends. We heard each other's stories after the retreat, and the best of these may have been everyone's different interpretations of the snow that fell overnight on our last night in silence. I had been reading from Psalm 51 before I fell asleep. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I was surprised to wake to a clean blanket of snow outside, whiter than snow. Sorry, I was trying to talk through it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Another girl who had been on the retreat had been praying at her window that morning and asking God to give her joy. She saw one of the guys walking outside in the snow and was thinking that it seemed very peaceful when he fell backwards and started to make a snow angel. She laughed and thanked God for a little bit of the joy she was asking for. We took the time for a break from our busy lives to make space for God. After losses and struggles, God had surrounded me in the desert and led me to peace and rest. Like Hosea's God, who takes away all the distractions and all the idols that you've come to love more than your first love, I left E.N.C. feeling a great loss, but quickly found myself in God's desert where I only had him and found all of his promises. He had said, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. I will say you are my people and you will say you are my God. I would like to encourage you, the graduates of the class of 2010, to consider the type of community that you are leaving this week and what it has meant to you. You have the opportunity to make many decisions about the type of life that you want to lead, where you will live, where you will work, and what communities of people you will live among. You can see that I chose to return to ENC. I also chose to live with Christian roommates, to be close to my immediate family, to go to grad school, go on the silent retreat, and get involved with Park Street Church, which is where I met my husband. You'll be making many decisions like these in the next several years but I don't want to discount the experiences that you've had here as a student at Eastern Nazarene College. I would like to close by sharing something that my class advisor, Dr. Randy Fish, said to me and my classmates when I was sitting in my junior-senior chapel five years ago. He told us, when you were here at ENC laughing with your friends or sitting with them as they cried in the dorm, you weren't just getting ready to do what God wants you to do. You were doing it. Thank you. Please stand as we sing our alma mater.